the topic of God's wrath with the understanding that God has a wrath against sin and because of the wickedness of humanity and, and their affront to God, this wrath must be poured out. And then our second week, we did the Stations of the Cross, where we went through uh, the commemorating of the death and crucifixion of Jesus, and we did that through video excerpts and through singing. Uh, and then uh, Brad then talked about God's law and the impact that the law had in bringing us to this point of understanding what the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection means for our life. And then last week, Steph Ratcliffe spoke on the first part of Romans chapter 3 and looked at uh, the fact that all of us are sinful, uh, that there is not one of us who is righteous. And so we looked at, at the fact that God is the only one that is righteous and we are in need of this righteousness. Now, I, I read um, at one point in my life from uh, one of my favorite authors, and, and he said this. He said that the gospel, before the gospel can become good news, we must recognize that at the very first point of the gospel, the gospel is bad news. Before we can truly understand what the good news is all about, we have to understand the bad news. And, and this is really what Steph kind of uh, spoke about last week. We have to understand the significance of what the bad news of the gospel means, which is when we look in the mirror, when we examine our life, when we're quiet before God and we look at who we are as individuals, we recognize we are fallen. We are sinful beings. It's the recognition of the, of the bad news that then sets us up for understanding and appreciating and accepting the good news in our life. And so looking at Romans chapter 3, to recap what, what Steph said, uh, the Apostle Paul quotes King David from Psalm 14, and this is what he says. He says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And so if we recognize this as truth in our life, if you and I say, yes, that is true. When I look at my life, when I look in the mirror, when I examine myself, when I think about all of my shortcomings, I recognize that just like every other person in my life, I fall short. I am sinful. Then we must come to the logical conclusion that we're in need of help. If, if we are sinful, then we need some way to get rid of this sin. We need to wipe it clean. We need to be saved. We need to be rescued. We need something to happen in our life to get rid of this problem. It, it's like a story. We've, we've reached the climax of the story. We recognize that we're in the worst possible situation, and we need some sort of redemption to get us out of this terrible, terrible situation. And this is what we would call the good news. Now, I don't know the first time that you heard about the good news, if you went to Sunday school as a child or, or your neighbor took you to vacation Bible school. Uh, maybe your parents taught you about the, the good news. Maybe a coworker at some point in your life kind of mentioned the good news to you. Uh, but the gospel is really what good news is all about. The word gospel means good news. And probably you've heard a variation of this at some point in your life. And, and the basic premise of the good news is this, is that while we are sinners, which is the bad news, Jesus came to earth. He died for our sins. He rose from the grave. And because of his death and resurrection, we are now saved. It is Jesus who rescues us. This is the concept of the good news. And a lot of us would say, yep, I've heard that before. In fact, I've even told people about that, or I understand it in my head. I don't know if I've quite decided to, to follow that teaching or, or to make that have an impact on my life, but I understand that that is what the good news is all about. However, and this is what I want to focus on today. However, I wonder how many of us understand why this is how the good news came about. 
How many of us understand, okay, I understand that Jesus died on the cross and, and somehow that saves me from my sins, but why? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why did Jesus have to spill his blood in order for you and I to be saved from our sins? Why couldn't God just forgive us? Why couldn't God say, you know what, none, is, none are righteous, you're not righteous, your neighbor's not righteous, no one who's walked this earth outside of Jesus is righteous, but you know what, instead of, of, of having my son come down and go through that whole ordeal of, of living a sinless life and, and dying and rising again, why don't I just forgive you? Why don't I say, I know, I know you crossed the line, but guess what, I'm a God of grace, I forgive you. Why couldn't God just do this? Because forgiveness is something that you and I do every day. You know, sometimes reluctantly, but generally we do it each and every day. You forgive your coworker. If you're married, you forgive your spouse. Your spouse forgives you. You forgive your kid when, when, when they do something that is disobedient to you. You forgive your parents when they do. I mean, you and I forgive each other each and every day. Even the most wicked, horrible, terrible people in the world, at some point in their lives, they forgive people, right? Otherwise, they would literally have no one to interact with because we're sinful. And so at some point or another, we're going to cross someone else. We're going to do something that we wish we could take back. And so we generally live underneath this world of saying, you know what? Forgiveness works. We don't always like to do it. It's messy. We don't want to do it. But you know what? It's just necessary. Otherwise, we'd never have any friends. We could never talk and associate with anyone else because we, we just see that forgiveness is just a normal part of our life. So why can't God do it? Why can't God, if, if he's all-powerful and, and he's capable of everything, why, why can't he just say, you know what, I forgive you. You're sinful, but I forgive you. Let's move on. And sometimes I think it's easy to have a, this, this image of God. It's kind of like this grandfatherly type who maybe in the Old Testament, uh, maybe when he was younger and when he was just a parent, if we're using that analogy, he was a stern disciplinarian who, 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 who just couldn't, couldn't do this. I'm not going to forgive you. No, no, I, I can't do this. But in his old age, you know, after he has a white beard and, and he's, he's kind of more this aw shucks kind of grandfather, you know, <laughs> boys will be boys and, you know, look how cute she is. We'll just kind of push that sin under the rug, and I forgive you. No big deal, because if God's a God of, of mercy and grace, why can't he just forgive us? Well, that's the question I want to look at today, and we're going to go back into Romans chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 21, right where, where Steph left off last week. And before we get any further, I want to make sure that I give vertical credit to Andy Stanley, who preached an incredible message on this, on this same text, and he also wrote... A great book. If you want to read a book that has to do with God's grace and what it means for, for God to be a God of grace and also of justice and mercy and, and incredible, it's just a great book. It's called The Grace of God by Andy Stanley. So a lot of what I'm teaching here today was influenced by his writing. So let's, let's look at Romans chapter 3, verse 21. You'll see the verses up there on the screen. This is from the New International Version. And we're going to walk through about five or six verses this morning and ask the question, why can't God just forgive us? Verse 21. And this is coming out of, of the understanding that none are righteous. We, we just finished the bad news part of Romans chapter 3. And Paul writes this, but now, where we get our series uh, title from, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, Paul's saying, 
Guess what, guys? There's now a way to become righteous. I just finished telling you how none are righteous. You're not capable of, of earning righteousness, of becoming righteousness. You're in this terrible situation. There's no possible way for you to become righteous. But now I'm telling you that there is a way to become righteous. And this righteousness, it comes not from the law. It's not something that you can do or earn or achieve. You can do by your own being. No, no, it comes up apart from the law. Everything that you've kind of known in the past in this, this law-based system, it's different than that. But this is actually what the prophets have been speaking about in the Old Testament scriptures for a long time. And this word righteousness, it's, we use it a lot in church, and sometimes it's difficult to understand what that means. It basically means a right standing before God. So Paul is saying there's a way for you to, to become right before God. Because we understand that our sin has now alienated us from God. And so Paul is saying there's a way for you to become righteous, for you to kind of interact with God, a person to God, and, and say, yes, we now have community once again. And he says it's not connected to our efforts. We can't earn this. Verse 22, this righteousness, this right standing from God, comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. So again, he says, this righteousness that is available to you from God, you can't earn this. It's tied to belief. It's tied to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's accessible to everyone who believes. There's no difference between individuals. And, and we have to remember that this was written to the church at Rome where there was a, a number of, of Jewish people. These are, these are people who, who grew up with the understanding of the Old Testament. And so they've had law pounded in them forever. And they've had this understanding of we're chosen people. We're special people. We're different than any other people. And so we kind of have extra benefits to this system. And Paul is saying, actually, now because we're not tied anything to the law, the law can't save you, the law can't make you righteous, there's a new system in place, and it's based on faith. And so because of that, it doesn't matter who you are, what family you were born into, what you have or have not done, you have the same access because it's, it's done through faith. And so for women and for men... For those who are slaves and servants, uh, for those who are Gentiles, which just means they're non-Jewish people, they have access to this righteousness as well, which is, which is a, huge, a huge statement for Paul to make. And then he finishes this, this statement of saying there's no difference between people with verse 23, which is probably well known to a number of you. For all have sinned. There's no difference because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is kind of this understanding of, of his expectation or his righteousness. And Paul is saying we've all sinned, and because we've sinned, now there's this gap. We've fallen short of God's expectation of his righteousness, of his glorious standard, and so we, we've got this problem. And as Steph taught us last week, sinning means missing the mark. And, and she used that illustration of if you have a bow and arrow, if you would take that arrow and, and launch it back on the bow and let go and you, you miss the target, you miss the bullseye, uh, by definition that means sin. You miss the mark. And what Paul is saying here is that we've all done this. This has kind of been his whole, his whole argument throughout this chapter. But what's interesting about this verse, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is he uses past tense and then he uses present tense. He says all have sinned. At some point in our life, we've sinned. We've missed the mark. 
that, that God has set up as a target for us. It might have been when you were three years old. It might have been 15 minutes ago. At some point in our life, we've missed the mark. And he says, because of what's happened in the past, because of our sin, right now, currently, we fall short. We don't measure up to God's standard. So, so to give a different illustration and to switch sports, because I haven't really done anything with a bow and arrow in my entire life, I think the only reference point I have is the animated movie of Robin Hood, which is still one of the best ever, I think. So if we can switch to, uh, to basketball mode, because we've got March Madness going on, uh, imagine that you're in a free throw shooting contest, all right? And you're standing 15 feet away from the hoop, and you're, you're, let's just pretend you're a good free throw shooter, all right? We might need to stretch the imagination a little bit. And let's just say that your competitor has just completed his foul shots, and, and he had 10 shots, and he made all 10 of them. So the standard is 10. And you go up to the line, and you've done so well during the, so, so far you've done really well during this competition. So you toe up to the line, and you spin the ball, and you go through your whole routine. You bend your knees, and you, you float the shot, and it looks good, and it rims in, and it rims out, and you missed. Now, you could make 10 more shots and finish 9 out of 10. You could, you could make... 50 more shots. You could keep going, and if we just eliminated that, that one shot, you'd, you'd be perfect. But the fact is, is that first shot, you missed. And at some point, uh, you, you've missed. And so because of what's happened in the past, because of your sin, because of missing the mark, now everything beyond that is really insignificant. It doesn't matter anymore. You don't measure up to that competitor who made every single shot. And this is kind of the picture that Paul paints. He says, at some point in our life in the past, we've sinned. And because of that, we don't measure up to God's glorious standard. That's what verse 23 is all about. But remember how Paul started out this section in verse 21. He says that there is actually a righteousness from God that's available to everyone. And I think really there's, there's two reasons uh, why he comes to this conclusion. The first is that he's already painted out the picture that righteousness is received through faith. So it doesn't matter what you and I do. It doesn't matter that we miss that free throw. It doesn't matter that we can't hit the target because it's about faith. It's not about what we do. It's about faith. And the second part is because we're all sinful, the playing field is level. Uh, again, it, does, it isn't tied to our works. Because everyone's sinful, we all have access now to God's righteousness because this is the new system that God has set up. Which brings us to Paul's conclusion, and this is, this is where we kind of get the meat of the text. This is verse 24. Paul says, uh, we're all short, or we all fall short of God's glorious standard, 24, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Now, depending on what Bible you're using, if you're using the New Living uh, Translation or the King James or the NIV, your Bible may not say justified freely. You might see instead made righteous. You might say now we are made righteous or now we are justified freely. And actually, it's the same Greek root word. You can translate it either way. You can translate it as made righteous or justified. And when you think about the word justice, it's usually used as a legal term, right? That someone is, is justified and, and so generally what that means is when someone is justified, they measure up. They're made righteous. And so those words are, are somewhat synonymous. And I think justice has a, a better indication of, of what Paul is actually referring to. And he says that we're justified, we're made righteous freely. This happens to us freely. It's a gift. It's something that we receive at no cost to ourselves. 
Now, receiving a gift is something that we can all relate to because we live in North America and our culture is obsessed with giving and receiving gifts. But I actually think that this is somewhat problematic, the concept of receiving a free gift, because most gift that, every gift that I've received, I think of it more as a gift exchange. Because when I receive a gift, I immediately think, okay, now I'm giving this person a gift. This is what Christmas is all about, at least in my warped mind. You know, because you don't want to go to someone's home, you don't want to go to a dinner party, and all of a sudden they've got a gift ready for you. That's like the worst possible situation, right? I know some people who have extra gifts at home. They kind of wrap them up and they think, oh, if someone comes over and brings me a gift, then I can kind of say, I've got a gift for you too. Because we don't like this idea of someone just giving us a free gift. No, no, no. We exchange gifts. Some of this makes us feel uncomfortable. But what Paul is saying here is actually this right standing that comes from God is a free gift. It's given to us freely. We, don't, we, we can't earn it. We can't give something back. No, no, no. This, this is a gift that is given to us completely freely. It's not deserved. And he says this is how we get this free gift. He says this, this righteousness, this free gift is offered to us through grace, by grace, which is, uh, again, understanding of this is free. You can't earn this. And it's done through the redemption of Jesus Christ. Our gift is given to us through the redemption of Jesus Christ. Now, the concept of redemption or redeeming is a word that probably uh, we, we know. But we don't use justification, sanctification, glorification, uh, righteousness. We don't use these words a lot in our everyday life. But the concept of redemption, of redeeming something, is something that actually we almost do every single day. And the reason is, is because most... All of our financial transactions that we do go through point-based systems or financial-based systems. And so when you go get gas, when you go to the grocery store, you accumulate points and then you can redeem them. Earlier this week, I was at Save on Foods. I bought groceries, about $50, $60 worth. I don't really remember. And I bought some salad dressing. And the salad dressing goes through the, the cashier line, through the little scanner. And the woman says, would you like to redeem your points. And I thought, redeem my points? I don't even know how many points I have. You're going to give me the salad dressing for free? Absolutely. Give it to me. I will take it. 500, 1,000 points, whatever, means nothing to me. So I redeemed these points. I got this gift for free. This is what I thought, at least, that I got this gift for free, right? I didn't pay anything for it. The same is true of gift cards. And going back to exchanging gifts, I mean, those are the best Christmas gifts, right? When you give someone a gift card and they give you another gift card back and it's the exact same amount. I mean, that is the ultimate gift exchange. Now, when you get a gift card, it kind of feels free. You go to Home Depot or, or whatever store you got a gift card for and you buy all these things and you give them a card and they redeem the value off this card, right? And you get all these things for free. But here's the thing. Someone paid for that gift card. You don't just get a gift card and, and you just use it and there's an unlimited amount of money. No, no, no. Whoever gave you the gift, they took their money, their $50, $100, whatever it was. They paid for it first. And now when you redeem it, you're actually exchanging these amounts. And that's what, that's what Paul is saying here. He says, well, our free gift, it's free to us. But it's free because it's, it's been redeemed. There was a payment attached to our free gift. And just like when I got my, my free bottle of salad dressing, I thought it was free to me. There was a cost to it. My points got redeemed. Now my, my point sum is lower, which is 
terrible, I guess, because now I can't use all my points and $400 to buy a $12 toaster. I guess that's, that's a terrible system. But what, what Paul is saying here is that there's a cost to redemption. And there's always a cost to redemption. Every single time, there's an initial cost, whether it's a gift card or any of that sort of thing. And when you redeem it, you're actually buying back. You're paying back. And so, in essence, what Paul is saying is our righteousness is free to us, but it costs Jesus something. And now we start to understand what, what's happening here. We're, we're receiving a free gift, but it costs something, and we understand that this cost is attributed to Jesus. He's the one that did the redemption here. And this is where we, we come to our, to our understanding of the question that we first asked. This is uh, verse 25 now. God presented him, Jesus... God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. So the cost of our free gift, and our free gift, remember, is righteousness. It's now a right equal standing. Our, our sin has, now, uh, has no impact us in, on us anymore. He says this free gift of righteousness is made possible through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now what does this mean? What is the atonement? Now people write lengthy books on this topic, and it can be highly controversial and, and confusing. But at, it, at its most simplistic form, the word atone means to wipe, wipe away or to, to cover over. It means to kind of blot out or, or rid. And it has its, its roots back to the Old Testament. What happened in the Old Testament is there was one day a year that the high priest, he would go into the Holy of Holies, or, which is representative of God's presence, and there was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a lid, and it was actually called the atonement cover. And the community there, they would, they would slaughter an animal, an innocent animal, and the priest would take the blood of the innocent animal, and he'd sprinkle it on top of this atonement cover, and what would happen is that God would look at this sprinkled blood and he would say, instead of wiping out the people who are sinful, I'm now going to look at this blood, this spilt blood of the animal on the atonement cover, and that's going to wipe away their sin. So basically, it's a concept of substitution. Atonement has to do with substitution, of saying, instead of this person being guilty or instead of this situation being terrible, and now we're looking at this situation. It's like God averted his eyes from one thing to another. And, and what we have here is the understanding that Jesus somehow made atonement for us as human beings. And, and so uh, what we have here is, is we come to this recognition that the atonement is, is how this gift has been paid for, but it still doesn't really help us understand why Jesus had to pay for anything to begin with. I mean, if, if Jesus uh, did the work of the atonement, that's, that's fine and dandy. But again, why could God just forgive us and take away the atonement to begin with? Why did blood have to be spilt? Why couldn't God just say, you know what, I forgive you and things are okay? This is where we come to the answer of this question. Verse 26. God did this, meaning God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. He did this to demonstrate or to validate his justice. God did all of this. He had Jesus come down to earth. He had Jesus spill his blood. He had Jesus uh, die and, and raise from the dead. He did all of this to show his justice. The reason why Jesus had to die is because God is just. That's it. 
The reason why Jesus had to spill his blood and die on the cross is because God is just. Now, this is a difficult concept for us to understand. But think for a moment that you're in a courtroom. And there's, there's so, much, so many legal parallels in the scripture, sometimes this can be helpful. Imagine that a judge is going to give his or her verdict to a situation. And we've got a, a person, we've got a man who's on trial for a terrible crime. And all the evidence adds up. We've got, we've got a motive, we've got weapon, we've got key eyewitness testimony. Everything adds up and, and the verdict basically is guilty. And we understand that. And the judge understands that, and everything is right, and there's no doubt in, in the judge's mind that this person is guilty. And, and the, the just thing to do is for this person to now spend life in prison. Now imagine if the judge says, you know what, I've got the evidence, uh, I've got the testimony, I've got everything I need, but you know what? I forgive you. You don't need to go to prison for the rest of your life. I forgive you. Go ahead, you're a free man, go on your way. Now, what would the victim's family say? Oh, that was nice. The judge, judge forgave him. That's great. Everything's done complete. No. The victim's family would say, that's unjust. You can't forgive someone. No. We need, we need punishment. We need penalty. We, we need, we need uh, somehow the penalty and the, and the crime. We need some sort of harmony here. That's not just. You can't just forgive someone and have that be a system of justice. We would say, that's a, that's a system of injustice. That's what we would say. And this is the same thing that we have here with God. God here is complete justice. His system is completely just. He can't just say to you or to me, you know what? I know you sinned, but I forgive you. Because that would not satisfy his justice. And his economy of justice, which is perfect and absolute justice, somebody has to pay for the sin. Jesus had to die because God is just. And in a system of absolute justice, somebody has to pay. Now, some of you may be saying, so I understand in my head that God is just, but sometimes I don't see the world as being just. Sometimes I don't feel like God is just in my life. I don't think like he's just in the rest of the world. I look at some of the advertisements on TV and I look at some of the, the people who are suffering in third world nations and I think, how could a God of justice allow that to happen? I think uh, about people in Guatemala, I think about uh, people in Rwanda, and I think, how could a just God allow these things to happen? Maybe you look a little bit more internally and you think, how could a just God allow my family member to suffer and to not be healed? Maybe you think, how could a just God allow me to go through all these financial difficulties? How could a just God allow me to, to not be married at this point? How could a just God say that I can't live in the region or the area that I want to? How could a just God allow my dreams never to become realized? Where is the God of justice? How is he just? You know, I think these are the same things that people have been asking for thousands of years. We have some of these very same comments in the Old Testament. Uh, think about Joseph. Joseph put in jail for a crime he didn't commit. Joseph, who was seeking to do everything according to God's desire, and all of a sudden he's stuck in jail with no hope. Where's the God of justice in that situation? Where's the God of justice in the story of Daniel? Where he's obedient to God, 
despite what the government tells him, and he gets thrown in into a den full of lions. Like, how is that just? Where's the God of justice there? What about Job, who has everything? He's literally defined as a righteous man who is blameless, and he loses everything, his family, his fortune, his own health. He's got nothing. Where's the God of justice in that situation? Where is the God of justice? And we sense this conflict between what we know about God's attributes and what we feel about his attributes. This is the, so important here. This is coming up to, to verse uh, 26 now. This is what he says. He says that, that uh, God demonstrated justice at this present time. Excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 25, second part of, of verse 25. God did this. He gave Jesus as a sacrifice to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, or another way of understanding that, in his patience or in his tolerance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. You see, here, here's the interesting contrast we have in the nature of God. While God is complete justice, while he operates under a perfect system of justice, he's also merciful. And because of his mercy, he is a patient God. And so what Paul is saying here is, over a course of time, God said, I'm going to allow this to happen. I'm going to allow sin to go unpunished for an amount of time because of my mercy. And so we see, in the accounts of our world, atrocities happening, sin seemingly going unpunished, wickedness prevailing, people getting ahead in life by doing ungodly things for a certain amount of time. And then God's justice says, I can't wait any longer. A penalty has to be paid. Because I'm a God of justice, somebody has to pay. And because of this, Jesus entered into the world. And Jesus entered the world and he assumed God's justice. He assumed the wrath of God. And so now when God looks at the sin of the world in our present time, and when he wants his justice to go out, Jesus can say, I paid for that. I already paid for that. I atoned for it. You look at that sin there. I've already covered that up. I've wiped that up with my own blood. And God's justice is satisfied. So all the sins of the world leading up to the time of Christ, when God's patience, when his merciful patience endured, was satisfied by Jesus' death on the cross. And now all the sin that happens afterwards has also been satisfied because Jesus can say, I atone for that. I took his place. I took her place. I paid the cost. And your justice can now be satisfied. Andy Stanley says it this way. He says, because God is a God of mercy, he allows sins to go unpunished for a while. But because God's a God of justice, somebody has to pay. And because God's a God of grace, Jesus paid the price. Because I'm a God of mercy, sin can go on for some time. I will be merciful. But because I'm a God of justice, somebody has to pay. But because I'm a God of grace, I'm going to pay. We see in verse 26 that God did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith. In Jesus, And we get a sense in this passage that, that Paul is so obsessed 
with righteousness and justice. I mean, he, time and time again, he talks about justice. His, God's justice demands payment. God's justice is why Jesus went to the cross. And this, this gift of Jesus' blood, it justifies us. It's all about God's justice. And we come to the recognition that the reason why Jesus had to die is because God is just. This is what the gospel message is all about. This is the good news. The good news is that we serve a just God. And the good news of grace is that we don't have to pay the penalty. Jesus took our place. But the gospel news is only good news for those who choose to accept it. And this is where we reach the point in the book of Romans where we understand that there are two diverging roads. While justice, the justice of God and the mercy and the grace of God is a free gift to everyone. This gift of righteousness made possible through Jesus Christ is a free gift to everyone. Someone chooses whether or not to receive it. Just like you can leave a gift unopened under the Christmas tree, or you can open up a gift and just put it on the shelf and never use it, you can choose whether or not you want to accept this gift of righteousness. And the choice is really an individual choice. Someone can't choose for you, and someone's faith can't somehow cover over your situation. Your parents' faith cannot justify you before God. Your wife's faith or your husband's faith cannot somehow atone for your sinfulness. No, it's only justified through Christ. And the decision is yours. You are made righteous through your faith, not anyone else's faith. And here's the thing. While Jesus came to the earth to atone for your blood and for my blood, he's going to come to the earth again. We don't know the hour, we don't know the time that he's going to come, but the scripture says that there will come a time when Jesus comes back to earth. But this time he's not going to come as the savior of the world. The first time he came, he came as God incarnate. He came to save people from the sins of the world. In fact, sometimes in the gospel, he said, I didn't come here to judge. I came to save. I came to heal. I came to restore. But the scripture also says that the next time Jesus comes, his second coming, he is going to come as a judge. And as God incarnate, Jesus has perfect justice. And when he comes back to the earth at some point, he is going to judge every single person, both the living and the dead, is what the scripture said. And because he is a God of justice, Somebody has to pay. And for those of us who say, I have accepted this free gift, I'm living for Jesus, I'm going to make him my leader, we, when we are asked how we're going to pay for our crime, how we're going to pay for our sins, we can point to the cross and say, I can't pay it. I can't do it. But I'm going to cling to what Jesus did on the cross. He is going to atone for my sin. But those who are unwilling to accept this gift, those who say, I don't want that gift, I don't need that gift, that gift is irrelevant to me, they are going to be forced to pay because God is a God of justice. And a just God says that somebody has to pay. My guess is that there's people here today who have not yet accepted this free gift. There's people here today who, for whatever reason, whether they don't understand their own unrighteousness or they don't know what it means to enter into righteousness through this free gift, have simply said, that's not for me. I choose not to follow. I don't want this in my life. If that's your situation this morning, I beg you, receive the gift. Take the gift. It's life. 
accept the gift of Christ's atoning, atoning sacrifice and live for Jesus. Choose life. We'll have people at our prayer tables in just a few minutes. And they'll be willing to listen to you. They can even guide you in a prayer of, rep- of repentance and acceptance of the grace of God. And they'll help you understand what it means to give your life to Jesus, to, to pray a prayer, to begin living your life, to confess your sins and saying, this is how I want to lo- live my life. This is what I choose to do. And for those of you who have already chosen to follow after Jesus, this is a reminder of the incredible news of salvation. The fact that there's nothing we can do. We can't earn salvation. We can't take salvation. We can only receive this gift from Jesus. And so we're going to remember this by celebrating communion. You'll notice that there's a communion table at your left or at your right. And the band's going to come up in just a minute or two. And they're going to lead us in a couple of songs. And we're going to take communion today corporately. We're going to do this as the body of Christ. And so when you feel that it's, it's time to go to the table, you can take the bread, you can take the cup of juice and return to your seats. And after we sung a couple of songs, we're going to take this together and we're going to remember Christ's atoning blood in our lives. Because God is a God of mercy. And in his mercy, he lets sin go unpunished for a while, for a time. But God's also a God of justice. And because he's a God of justice, somebody has to pay. But the good news is that because he's a God of grace, Jesus said, I'll pay the price. This is the message. This is the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you today for paying the price. We want to thank you, Lord, for choosing to intervene on our behalf, for choosing to pay the penalty that God's justice requires. And so this morning I ask, Lord, if there's anyone here who has not yet accepted this free gift, that they would sense your presence, God, that your spirit would move in them, that they would recognize the truth and that this truth would set them free, free from sin, and that they would be united with you today and forevermore. And God, for for those of us who have already made this decision, I ask that that you would just refresh our commitment to you. That sin would, would be abhorrent to us. That we would understand how it alienates us from you, how it leads to the road of death. And that we would just celebrate in victory the fact that you have redeemed us. You have bought us back. You have purchased us. And we have freedom and redemption because of that. Lord, as we remember your death and resurrection, Help us to celebrate with grace, grace that we then pass on to those around us so that your grace and your kingdom may be known in our world. Amen.